Well, more fallout today from that leaked draft U.S. Supreme Court uh, decision that appears to indicate that they're about to overturn Roe versus Wade, the uh, decision, uh, the landmark 1973 case that created a nationwide nationwide right to abortion in the U.S. Um, the draft's heated rhetoric has also been generating a lot of concern uh, that LGBTQ advances and other matters based on the rights to privacy could be vul- vulnerable in a new political environment. Meanwhile, On this side of the border, Canada's minister responsible for families, children, and social development points out that despite the Monday night leak of the U.S. Supreme Court draft document, Roe versus Wade has not yet been overturned. Karina Gould says the Trudeau government is continuing to work on its election promise to permanently protect a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion in this country. But I remain extremely alarmed uh, by seeing this uh, happening in the United States, the possibility of it. And we have to be really cognizant and really vigilant that something similar doesn't happen here in Canada. Uh, Conservative MPs have been warned not to comment on the development. The NDP has called on the Liberals to do more than talk about protecting the right to choose. Uh, The Trudeau government has promised $10 million, uh, an information portal on reproductive health and rights. There was no mention of that in the federal budget last month. To look at all of this, joining me now is Emily Wills. She's an associate professor of political studies at the University of Ottawa, but born and raised in the United States, a graduate of Yale University. So a great perspective on this issue from both sides of the border. Emily Wills, thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy to be here. I guess just your initial reaction to the substance of uh, what this leaked draft decision from the Supreme Court uh, seems to state about uh, doing away with Roe versus Wade. Well, on the one hand, it was it was a shock to see it dropped in this particular way and to see it articulated. Um, this is kind of this is kind of the most extreme version of this decision that we could have anticipated. But the fact that a decision like this is being written is not actually that surprising. It's disappointing to me as someone who has has commitments to women's reproductive rights. But it's really we knew this was coming. Uh, we've known this was coming since the court gained its current composition. And simply the the most surprising thing really is that this is this is the epitome of what we thought might happen. We got the whole package at this moment. How so? Because I realized that that with with the chief justice, there was this idea that maybe it would be a slow erosion of Roe versus Wade, sort of a, a walking back of the of the rights gain under Roe versus Wade. But this is, in fact, a complete annihilation of Absolutely. So Roe versus Wade, apart from legalizing abortion, it builds on the Griswold versus Connecticut case and establishing a constitutional right to privacy, which functionally means a right for people to make decisions that are personal to them and have the ability to kind of have autonomy that the state can't restrict in their personal lives. And that right to privacy is the constitutional foundation in in jurisprudence for the right to birth control, for the right to abortion, for the right to same-sex marriage, um, for the right to uh, various forms of of queer liberation and other forms of of empowerment for people whose bodily lives are frequently constrained by the state, right? And whether or not that was a good way to base all of our jurisprudence is, I, I, I personally would have picked another basis for it, but that's how the jurisprudence has been developed. And this decision contains the possibility in it that one could take this decision, which says, okay, there is no constitutional right to privacy, and therefore people, therefore states have the ability to restrict abortion. And this is something that, that needs to be left up to legislators, not to the court. Um, that exact same logic can be applied in all of those subsequent cases. 
right? So the problem with that is that, you know, we don't just see the possibility of it, right? Because obviously, if nobody had written that down, certainly the next court case change challenging why does a state have to have to authorize same-sex marriage could have used that logic. But we don't even have, like, th- those lawyers don't even need to make that argument. It's actually in the text here, right? So there's no... Basically, what this looks like is the most extreme version of articulating this point that could be legislated. And Supreme Court decisions carry a lot of weight going forward. And no, clearly, in this case, not just about reproductive rights. That's right. You know, it's, this is uh, this notion of the right to privacy that has gotten a lot of traction um, and that that went from Griswold to Roe really shoring up a whole body of jurisprudence. Um, and it's been it, the reliance on the courts to hold the line on this means that if you knock down a single domino, the rest of the dom- dominoes get really wobbly, really fast, potentially. Right. So nothing's nothing's happened yet, but this becomes very plausible very quickly. Certainly, this is not the final the final decision. We know that we expect that sometime in the early summer, either late June, early July. Um, I think as a Canadian, what's always puzzling is that we know from numerous surveys that a vast majority of Americans support a woman's right to choose, support Roe v. Wade. And yet here we are. So this really gets to the heart of some of the challenges of electoral politics in the U.S. right now. And it's been growing over the past couple decades, Um, which is to say that, first of all, partisans of the two parties have gotten further apart from each other on various issues. There used to be a kind of much more centrist wing of the Republican Party, and they're mostly Democrats now. There used to be some more religious conservatives in the Democratic Party, and those folks either retired or became Republicans, right? So voters have resorted themselves ideologically further apart. But the other thing is that the U.S. political system is fundamentally anti-majoritarian, right? There's a lot of institutional ways in which groups that are not the numeric majority get to control. And those those pressure points in our system are weighted towards the rural states, largely, right? So rural states are overrepresented, dense urban states are, are underrepresented proportionally. And that means that when those rural states, when, when political leadership within them is deeply conservative, right? Or when there's, un, there's enough with it, enough voters within the state to tip it to the Republican Party, they are going to end up having control. The other thing that we see is because uh, American elections follow a two-step process, right? Instead of having a nomination process, uh, we have a process called a primary. We just completed the primaries for a lot of elections today um, for, for the fall's general election. And the primary elections are only among partisans, right? You have to actively claim membership at a party which means those people who actively claim being a Republican who are to the right of even the modal Republican voter can pick who the Republican candidates are, right? So again, you end up with this situation where candidates are further, candidates are getting further and further apart, and that really helps create a strong anti-choice block within the Republican Party that can 
hold that position very firmly and can really influence policy. We've seen a lot of um, consternation uh, over the last 48 hours from the Democrats, from President Biden and others. Are they in a position here in any way to try to, to cut this off at the pass? Or are they somewhat powerless to watch half the states in the union uh, you know, criminalize abortion or at least prevent access to it even more than it already exists uh, if, in fact, this decision stands? Well, the solution here is a nationally passed legislation that legislates that abortion is a medical procedure and is not any more restricted than any other medical procedure, right? That abortion is a legal medical procedure that can be carried out. Um, And this, there's a little bit of a technical problem, which is that um, the U.S. has the reverse form of federalism from Canada, which is that anything not reserved to the feds goes to the states, whereas in Canada, it's anything not reserved to the province goes to the feds, right? right. Um, this took me a minute to figure out when I got here. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And so, and thank you to my students for pointing it out. <laughs> and my... And so what that means is that for the federal government to pass legislation on a matter related to healthcare is always a bit of a tricky business, right? So the way for the U.S. government to do this would be to, say, change um, Medicare and Medicaid policy to make abortions coverable under public health insurance and assure that people have access to them that way. Change the Affordable Care Act to list. So the afford- but in fact, the Affordable Care Act has been gutted in terms of um, what it required states to do. So the, the, whether or not you could get judges to continue to say, yes, the U.S. can do this, the federal government can, can make these policies is is a question but really this is an issue that generally should in the ideal case of the constitution be decided at the state level and that's what's so worrying for many people i'm speaking with emily wills an associate professor of political studies at the university of ottawa but born and raised in the u.s a graduate of yale university we're talking about the leaked draft uh initial decision from the supreme court that shows a 5-4 vote in favor of overturning uh, the laws that are the ruling, or at least that legalized abortion in the United States, what repercussions it could have. We've been talking about uh, it being essentially a slippery slope based on the idea of privacy. And this could also apply to other uh, areas of law whereby privacy has been the basis of, of ruling such a same-sex marriage. Uh, when we come back, and, and Emily's made a nice segue towards it already, we'll look at what kind of impact that could have, what's going on in the U.S. could have on this side of the border. That's next. I'm back with Emily Wills, Associate Professor of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, born and raised in the U.S., a graduate of Yale University. We've been talking about the leaked uh, draft decision, uh, at least not the final decision, but a draft decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that would suggest that it's on the verge or will sometime later this year overturn uh, the seminal 1973 court case or ruling Roe v. Wade, uh, which legalized abortion in the United States. When you look at this side of the border, obviously you pointed to it earlier. Um, in Canada, abortion is a medical procedure, a legal one at that, or at least a non-criminal one at that. Um, but there are some of the same forces at play on both sides of the border. Do you see that? Do you see that? Is, is there any cause for um, for those advocating for a woman's right to choose to be concerned in this country? Well, the first thing that I think it's important to underline is that um, 
advocates for abortion and for reproductive health care in Canada have really underlined that our major challenge here is one of access. Um, And so the access issue has been used in the U.S. for years um, to make sure that even where abortion is legal, it is tremendously inaccessible. And the same technique is at work uh, in Canada, right, with New Brunswick being the standout example for us of a province that has looked to say, well, if we have to keep it legal, that doesn't mean we need to make it possible for you to do it, right? Um, And so that's, that's one thing that in some ways we see the movements on both sides of the border borrowing tactics from each other, right, and adapting them to their own context. The other thing, however, that we are seeing at this moment, first of all, um, things that happen in the U.S. frequently affect Canadians by annoying them and that people who are advocates for issues that match the issues being debated in the U.S. use this as an opportunity to put the issue front and center. Right. So just as we saw a reflected conversation about police brutality in Canada as the conversations about racialized police brutality in the U.S. happened, we're likely to see new conversations about this happening among advocates for reproductive rights as well as opponents, right? So we're going to see a heightened level of debate. However, what's interesting to me is, uh, I don't know if other people have seen this, but I have seen a lot of Canadian politicians, um, including some from the Conservative Party, starting to say, um, you know, FYI, we actually continue to support abortion as a legal procedure, right? I think I saw Jean Charest post about this on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which was an interesting little messaging moment. Our conservative party um, is much more divided on these kinds of social conservative and and fundamentalist Christian views than the American uh, Republican Party is. Um, Our our party, even those um, on the right side of the spectrum, are as likely to be firm libertarians as they are to be religious fundamentalists, right? Certainly, I have colleagues who've done great work on on the anti-abortion movement in Canada, and it does, it absolutely exists, and there are still folks articulating these principles, but they're just not as well represented numerically in government, right? And so I think what we're likely to see is, is some folks for whom this has been their issue for a while, trying to dig in, we may see more efforts to restrict access practically among um, conservative parties in the provinces who have seen, who, who have connections to these, these religious components of the conservative movement. Um, but at the federal level, either we're going to see big mobilization from people who want to differentiate us from the U.S. and reinsure that nice Canada is not the U.S. vibe, or we're just going to see more of these exact things. Do you think it's important for all politicians, regardless of their political views versus their private views, do you think it's important for all politicians to make their feelings on this matter known? On the one hand, it is something I would want to know as a voter what politicians I'm voting for, where they stand on this issue. But I also think you can keep the division. And and I've seen people in the Democratic Party in the U.S. do it for years between a personal conviction and a policy conviction. And regardless of personal convictions, there's a subset of folks who will say, I have strong moral feelings on this question, but the state needs to be neutral in this issue. Um, And neutrality means non-criminalization and legality, 
right? For whether, again, this is, this is something that applies to broad questions of reproductive rights, broad questions of, of uh, same-sex marriage and questions like that. And so I think what's important to know about individual politicians is that question of, do you think this is an issue the state should be intervening on? regardless of what your personal your personal leanings on whether you think this is a moral or immoral issue so um again i think this is a question of of what does the state have a right to do and if we keep that first and foremost i think we end up with with a different conversation which the u.s conversation is far from right now emily willis thank you so much for your time tonight it's been a pleasure